Well, I can get stressed out pretty easily, particularly when it has to do with kind of my, my schedule or, or routine. I really, I mean, I've said this, but I love a good rut. When I'm, when I'm in a rut, then, then everything is fine. And, and when, when things are going smooth for me, uh, then all of life feels pretty smooth. Uh, but when things don't go according to my plan, uh, you know, I can just, I can freak out a little bit. And it doesn't take me all that long to, to start grumbling. And I'll, I'll whine to, to Kelly or to Patrick or Chris or really just anybody that's close enough to listen. Or I'll, I'll just keep it inside but become really just cranky, you know. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take much for me to begin grumbling, and, and you know, grumbling, right? That, that, that bitter and resentful attitude deep within that says, I deserve better than this. I mean, I, I'm entitled to have everything always go my way. Anybody else feel that way from time to time, right? Yeah, okay. Any other complainers out there, right? Yeah, yeah, you know who you are. Uh, I know who some of you are as well. Um, some of us, yeah, we're, we're complainers. Anybody with, a, with just a massive sense of entitlement, right? Nobody, nobody really wants to admit that. Um, that that's a little bit harder. Uh, but generally, right, we, we have this sort of conversation so often, whether we realize it or not, in the back of our minds that says something like, you know, I, I deserve a good job. I deserve enough money. I deserve enough time off. I deserve enough vacation. I, I deserve a good family. I deserve a spouse who, who always agrees with me. I deserve a better golf score. I mean, always in the back of our mind. And then this sort of, well, woe is me if I don't get what I want. Comedian Louis C.K. Uh, did a bit on Conan a few years back. The video went viral. Um, and kind of the, the summary statement of it is, everything is amazing and nobody's happy. We're going to watch just a little bit of it. I mean, doesn't that about sum it up, right? I mean, I, I love that last line. How quickly the world owes him something that he only knew existed 10 seconds ago. But that's, that's us, right? I mean, we, we feel that incredible sense of entitlement. And, and every parent knows the worst sound their child can make, right? Whining. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard because, I mean, with whining, right? It's not just, it's just what they say. It's the underlining accusation that it is, isn't it? Because whether they say the words or not, what they're really saying with that tone of voice is, Mom, you don't really love me. Dad, Dad, you don't really give me what I need. I need new parents, right? I mean, that's, that's what whining is. But how often do I do the exact same thing? 
maybe with a different voice, not the whiny voice, although occasionally. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I gripe, I whine, and with every complaint, I mean, really, what's, what I'm actually saying is, God, you're pretty lousy at taking care of me. Because every complaint, every one, is ultimately a complaint against God. And he doesn't like it either. Because not only is our, is our grumbling an attack against him, it, he also knows that it, it destroys us. Grumbling destroys happiness. A heart that grumbles refuses joy and peace. Grumbling is a clear indicator of a diseased heart. And if we're not careful, our grumbling will kill us. And we see that in our story this morning. Again, we're on this journey together through the, uh, the entire Bible this year. We're only in Exodus 16, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, so it's the second book of the Bible. We, we've got some ground to cover yet, uh, but it's only February. Exodus 16 is where we're at. And here's, here's what we, we see uh, this morning. And if you're taking notes, write, write this down. Grumbling equals death. Grumbling equals death. And friends, grumbling is always just around the corner. As we look at this first half of the story, we're going to spend some time really just trying to figure out what grumbling is. And four things in particular, we'll talk about each of these. Grumbling begins with real problems. Grumbling comes with faulty memories and poor expectations. Grumbling is ultimately about God, and grumbling leads to death. We'll talk about these four together. So what is grumbling? Grumbling equals death. Last, last week, if you remember, God had just saved his people from Egypt, from this, this slavery that they found themselves in, this absolute oppression. We saw the, the ten plagues and how amazing it was. And now we see that God is beginning to save them to the promised land, to this new life ahead. We saw the, the Passover feast. We read about that, uh, or reading about that in the next couple of days. And uh, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. All these amazing miracles and just imagine what it would be like on the good side of the Red Sea. I mean, having just witnessed all of those incredible miracles. I mean, I mean think about that. They, they saw things that we can't even hardly dream of. I mean, our God, Yahweh, he can do anything. And now at the end of chapter 15, it's so a little bit before where we're at, I mean, it's literally three days after the Red Sea. And they're all celebrating, happy, and they all live happily ever after, right? No, three days later, and they're grumbling. They're thirsty. You can't really blame them, right? They probably should have thought about the water thing as they left and went into the desert. But they're, they're thirsty now in this moment. They begin grumbling against God, but at the end of 15, God gives them water. He's so gracious. They never say thanks at the end of that. Uh, but God gives them water, and then they, they move on. And so at the beginning of 16, they're, they're in uh, Elim, which is a little bit farther down. I've, I think we've got a couple of maps here. Um, so there, there's Elim. Amara was up, up to the north. Uh, and Elim is this, this oasis. Uh, it is a place of God's provision and rest, but it's not the place that God had promised to them. And so they pick up once again, and now it's six weeks after the crossing of the Red Sea. 
and they are on the way to Mount Sinai, somewhere between the Oasis in Elim and Mount Sinai, in this, this terrible wilderness, this desert. And there in the middle, it begins in chapter 16, verse 2, they run out of food. And it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So what is grumbling? Grumbling begins typically, not always, typically begins with real problems. I mean, yeah, the Israelites, I mean, they definitely blow it here, but you don't, at least I, I don't want to be too hard on them, at least initially. They're hungry, Right? Uh, and they're in the, middle, in the middle of nowhere. They're watching their children who haven't eaten in a few days, and their stomachs are all growling. I mean, they, they feel a terrible sense of fear in this moment. And even just think about, you know, being in this wilderness, this, this desert. Um, this past summer, as a family, we, we drove through some of the remotest parts of Utah, um, like where even on Interstate 70, you can go for 100 miles and not see an exit. I mean, truly, okay? I've got a picture here. I mean, it's, the, all you see is nothing. Um, no cell coverage, no businesses, gas stations, no homes, not really even any other cars. Uh, and truthfully, I mean, we we're on this for quite some time. It was, it was kind of a scary experience, right? We like packed extra water, you know, thinking, what, what do we do if we break down in a situation like that? And I remember at one point saying to Kelly, I mean, this is probably a little bit of what it at least looked like for the Israelites as they wandered around in the desert. That's a terrifying reality. Except they didn't have any roads, right? No maps. And now they're hungry. They're really hungry. And they start grumbling but it does often begin with real problems, doesn't it? Whether, whether it's them or us. I mean, so many of our, our worries are legitimate. Doctor calls with test results. You get a pink slip at work. Your kids are, are making terrible decisions. We all have those things in our circumstances that cause us great grief, frustration, fear. And so many of them are legitimate. So is starving in the wilderness. It's what we do with those fears and frustrations. Because if you look at the text, it says there in in verse 4 that God is testing them. I mean, God parted the Red Sea, right? Couldn't he have just picked his people up and plopped them right where he wanted, smack dab in the middle of the promised land? I mean, of course he could have. But deprivation is a powerful teacher. Maybe just think about it. How can you learn to trust if your trust is never tested, is it even possible? Now, remember last week we, we said that God saves us for himself, right? That he is the goal of all things. The goal of our redemption is God himself and his glory. And so if we get too comfortable, we'll end up loving the gifts instead of the giver. We'll end up trusting where he's taking us instead of him, and we'll miss the goal. Sometimes the most loving thing God can do is lead us to the wilderness. It's what we do with those fears and frustrations that matters. Think back. In Exodus 2, when they were still enslaved and the oppression was was terrible upon the people, they cried out to God 
and he heard them. He responded joyfully, glad, gladly to intercede for them. But now they grumble. It's a big difference. We can, we can cry out to God. We can lament. We can plead with him to intercede on our behalf. But we'd better quit whining. Because grumbling equals death. And second, as the story continues, grumbling comes with faulty memories and poor expectations. Look what it says in, in verse 3. This is what the people say to Moses. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Moses, God, just kill us already. Just, just put, us, put us out of our misery. And then, and then they begin reminiscing. And I love this. Because they're like, oh, remember the good life? Remember what it was like back in Egypt? Oh, if only. I mean, remember when, when Pharaoh tried to kill all of our babies by having them thrown into the Nile? Remember, oh, if we could just go back there. Remember when we had to make bricks without straw? Remember when all we knew was oppression and death was a relief? Ugh, if we could just go back. We talk about selective memory, right? I mean, we've, we've read the story. Think about it, okay? This wasn't exactly the good life. I don't remember a whole lot about meat pots and, and bread to the full. But the slavery they knew was a little more appealing at this point than the freedom they didn't. And they're afraid. Reminds me a little bit of the, the Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating film about this, this main character who is convinced that his life would be so much better if only he lived back in 1920s Paris. And everything about his life is focused back on that time period. And, and he can go on and on about how great it was back then and how good life would be for him if only he lived back then. And then there's this one moment where a character responds insightfully back after his description of how awesome it is. He said, yeah, but you, you forgot the tuberculosis. I mean, it's very easy to th- go through all of our lists and think, yeah, okay, that's better. That's, well, our memories can be so selective, can't they? We almost always view the past with rose-colored glasses, thinking if, if only, you know, way back then, it must have been better. It must have been okay. And truthfully, those, those phrases, if only, or remember when, those phrases often lead us to grumbling. And what we often end up saying to God is, you know, God, you were much better at being God back then. And that's really what the Israelites are doing here in this moment. But it's not just faulty memories either. And I think, I think this one gets us in trouble just as much. It's also poor expectations or unrealistic expectations. Uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal a, a little while back uh, entitled, The Trophy Kids Go to Work. Uh, it's, it's about how the, the millennial generation, right, this next generation of individuals who are now entering the workforce are the kids who always grew up getting a trophy for everything. Now, you know, a trophy for participation or you know, whatever, but always got a trophy. And the, the study shows that this generation, the millennials, tend to be the most entitled people there are. 
Uh, and the study talks about how they expect better pay, they expect better benefits, more time off, greater job satisfaction as they now enter the workforce. And most often their expectations are completely unrealistic. They expect everything because they've been sort of given everything. And they tend to be some of the most, or can be, some of the most miserable people on the planet as a result. Grumbling is discontent born out of entitlement. And we say to God, you know what, God? I deserve better than this. You owe me more than this. And for the Israelites, okay, if we even just think about their context, think about what is going through their minds in this moment. God, this is redemption? This is what you saved us for? This is what life with you is now like? We grumble because we don't understand redemption. And often our expectations are completely unrealistic. The world is broken. And sure, we've been rescued, but God's people always wait. Abraham waited. Joseph waited. Moses waited. Now the people of Israel wait. This is the norm for redemption, not the exception. Our world is broken. And yet God is rescuing us, but he rarely rescues us from the wilderness. Though he does rescue in the wilderness. But when we grumble, no matter matter our pain or our frustration, we say to God, if you really loved me, if you really took care of me, and if that's our attitude towards God, we'll never be happy. Grumbling equals death. Because grumbling is ultimately about God. We can call our our complaints and our frustrations whatever we want to call them. But essentially, they are always about God. And they always reveal a heart that doesn't trust him. In verse 8, for example, Moses is now responding back to the people of Israel. He says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Meaning, who are, who, are Moses, who are Moses and Aaron? Your grumbling is not against us, he says, but against the Lord. God takes it personally when we whine. Again, we can, we can cry out to God. We can weep before him. We can plead for him to intercede on our behalf. But grumbling, complaining, gripe, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Because God has already proven his goodness and love. But grumbling denies his faithfulness. It denies that he's going to continue to act in, in love and goodness and that he's, going to, that he's not going to act that way to me. The Hebrew word for, for grumbling is loon. Uh, it, it implies this sense of, of dissatisfaction and even resentment. And really it has roots even in this idea of assigning blame. To grumble is to blame God. To grumble is to call him weak or evil. To grumble is to make ourselves his judge. And we're the ones who get to decide whether or not what God is doing is good. And if that's true, grumbling isn't a mild complaint. Grumbling isn't a slight misdemeanor. Grumbling is treason. It isn't passive frustration. It is active rebellion. Their stomachs aren't their main problem. It's their hearts that are in trouble. 
Every time you and I grumble about our circumstances, about our spouse or our parents or our work or whatever it might be, every time we grumble, yeah, there, there are, are healthy places, healthy ways to, to, to talk about our, our frustrations and our, our worries and our concerns, but when we do so with even an echo of bitterness, what we really mean to say is, my God is lousy. And he's lousy at taking care of me. Which is why, then, of course, grumbling leads to death. And listen, you are way more likely to die of grumbling than starvation. And grumbling is a death way more severe. I mean, for the Israelites here in this story... God continues to spare them. In fact, I mean, he's so gracious. He, he provides manna from heaven, this, this strange sort of bread-like substance that just kind of shows up every morning. I mean, he is so good to them in this moment. But they don't learn to stop grumbling here. In fact, we'll see it again in, in chapter 17. We'll see it again later on in in Numbers 13 and and 14. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. And and there in Numbers, uh, their grumbling is so severe that they refuse to enter the promised land. And so God says, okay. And he waits 40 years. God does. Waits 40 years until the entire generation of grumblers has died off before he fulfills his promise to bring them into the promised land. Crumbling equals death. But it's not just physical death, right? And grumbling is just no way to live, is it? We all, we all know those people, right, who are just bitter and angry about everything. We, we know them and we feel sorry for them. But chances are they didn't start off that way. And every one of us is in danger of taking the same bitter path. It's no way to live. And ultimately, and most importantly, grumbling reveals a dead and faithless heart. Grumblers don't trust. And without trust in Christ, we are lost, separated from God forever. Grumbling equals death. So how do we escape grumbling? I mean, we don't want to be like this, do we? Right? We read stories like this. We know people like, I don't, I don't want to feel that, that sense of panic when things don't go my way. I don't want bitterness and entitlement casting doubt on God's goodness. I want to trust him. And I want to live with trust and with the joy and the peace that, that comes with. But, but how? I think we're given a, a subtle but essential key in the verses that follow. Now, in verse 10, we didn't read this section yet. Uh, In verse 10, God feeds them. Here's what it says, verse 10. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So first, God shows up, right? Which is just so, so amazing. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know. If you don't already, after everything I've done, right? Then you shall know, God says, that I am the Lord your God. And so even in light of the rebellion, right? God responds with provision, with grace, but it's, it's so much more than that. Food cannot be the solution, can it? 
If if God always just gives us whatever we want or, or what we think we need, our hearts will never change. We need something more. What we need is rest. If grumbling equals death, then rest equals life. Rest is the opposite of grumbling. Because yes, God, God provides food for them here, uh, but he does it in such a way to teach them how to escape their grumbling problem. And it's rest. So, so this manna, that's you know, with this mysterious bread-like substance that would appear every morning. That's what that's called, manna. just means in Hebrew, what is it? Uh, that's, that's the phrase for it. They don't know what it is, but they eat it, and it sustains them. It gives them the life that they need to continue. But God gives them some pretty interesting sort of rules surrounding uh, their collection of the manna. Uh, for instance, they're only supposed to collect the exact amount that they're going to be eating that day. Um, they're not to hoard it. And some of them do. I mean, that's kind of our temptation, right? It's like, especially when you're hungry and you've been starving, it's like they, they gather as much as they can. But the next day, anything that they've gathered is rotten. It's disgusting. There's like maggots and worms in it. But there's fresh manna out there for them to go get. And that happens every day except on the day before the Sabbath. On the day before the Sabbath, the day that they were set aside for rest, they were to gather twice as much. And then on their day of rest, they could rest. They could eat and be satisfied without, without fear, without worry. It says in verse, in verse 29, it says, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. But what does Sabbath have to do with grumbling? Everything. Sabbath rest is God's antidote for our grumbling hearts. Rest in God, true soul rest, is God's way of dealing with our restlessness. Well, how do we get that here? Well, this is the first place that the word Shabbat, or Sabbath, just meaning rest, appears in the Bible like this. I mean, it's alluded to in, in different places. I mean, we saw it in the garden, right, when God rests on the seventh day to give them this, this example. Uh, but here, for the first time, it's actually commanded. In the midst of their whining, God tells them, you've got to rest more. You people got to take a day off once in a while. And, and when some of us think of Sabbath... I know, I know for me, some of my images that come to my mind, we think of, of church, right, or, or some you know, activity that we do here together, or maybe depending on how you were raised, you, you, you picture like just staring at a blank wall all day on Sunday, and it was just sort of lousy, couldn't, couldn't do anything fun. That, that's not Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath isn't just sort of resting. Sabbath is being at rest, because you see, I mean, think back context, right? We, we so quickly jumped to our day, our lives, and all of that. But there were no days off in Egypt. I mean, slave, slaves don't rest. And now God says to them, now you can rest. Not just can, but must. And it's not just slaves who overwork. 
Anyone afraid for their next meal overworks? Anyone who's desperate to, to feel good enough in the things that they do overworks? Anyone who is lacking a sense of security or significance or satisfaction overworks? People who grumble are never at rest. But not God's people. Because God's people now have everything they need. They have God. And if you have God, you can rest. And if we learn to rest, we'll stop grumbling. Because rest trusts. You cannot rest if you don't trust. I mean, can you? You just can't. And these people, I mean, they're, they're terrified from, for where their next meal is going to come from. And I, I can't blame them. I mean, it's easy to think going through their mind, yeah, we've got manna today, but what about, what about tomorrow? What do you mean, Moses? What do you mean, Yahweh? We're supposed to take a day off. And some of us, we don't rest because we don't trust. You've got to be the best at whatever you do, the best at your job, because God's not going to take care of you, right? And your children have to be the best at whatever they do. They've got to be involved in every activity, because God's not going to take care of them, right? And we fill our lives with every possible distraction that we can. I mean, if you can't take a day off, if you won't, weekly, and actually rest, then you might as well be a slave. And you're certainly not going to trust. And of course you're going to grumble when junk happens. Because you're already living as if you are the supreme ruler of the universe, aren't you? I mean, isn't isn't that really what it means? God is the only one who never stops working. But when we refuse to rest, what we're really saying is, you know what? He needs a little help. I need to work, and I need to never stop. And if we, if we sort of allow ourselves to creep into the seat of the divine, of God himself, then of course we're going to grumble. And we, we feel like we have the right when, when stuff begins falling apart because we're the ones who, who then are saying we, we control the universe. If you really want to stop grumbling or complaining, if you really want to learn how to trust Take a day off. One day every week. No work email. No homework. And just rest. Everybody's like, are you kidding? But come on, I I, I can't possibly do that. Really? Really? Well, then you're a slave, and you might as well go back to Egypt. God didn't rescue you for that. And ultimately, it reveals what what you think about yourself and what you think you need to do, because God's not going to do it. He's not going to be the one to take care of you. Oh, but come on, things were different back then. Life life was easier. It It was simpler. Really? Are you sure about that? I mean, for these people, taking a day off could actually mean eventually starving to death. What's the very worst thing that's going to happen to us? We lose our sense of control? We give up on a little bit of self-made security or significance? 
We don't feel quite as good about ourselves. I mean, really, what's the worst that's going to happen? If we really trust God, we can, we can follow what he tells us to do. And he tells us to rest. You know, this is, this is a hard one for me. I mean, just, just truthfully. I realize some of you probably think I only work one day a week. Um, I, can, I can handle that. I guess. But this, this is a hard one because I, I love, like many of you, I love what I do. And like many of you, mine is a job that the work is never done. We, many of us work in those kinds of, there's always something more to do. For me, there's always more people to meet with, more people to love. The sermon can always be a little bit better. I mean, there's always something to do. We all feel that. And even though I'm not very good at it, it's my commitment to take one day off every week. For me, that's usually Friday. Uh, sometimes it's Saturday. It sort of depends. It's not Sunday for me, um, you know, otherwise engaged. Um, but to take one day off. And you know why? Even though it's hard. I mean, it's painful. And it means that I've got to work harder, right? The other six days of the week, doesn't it? But I do it because God says that I can. And not just, not just that I can, that I should. And ultimately, I do it because it reminds me that God's God, and I'm not. That, that God is, the, he's in charge of, of protecting and caring for his church, not me. And he's, he's in charge of, of caring for my family, not me. And caring for my, my ego, right, and my own self-absorption. He's in charge of this, not me. And so I force myself, again, not perfectly, not always, but I force myself to say, you know what? God is God. I'm not. There are few things in the world that teach us to trust, like rest, which makes it God's antidote for a grumbling heart. Rest trusts. And I know a lot of you don't even believe a word I'm saying right there. Or you, or you believe it, but you're like, yeah, but not for me. Really? Maybe just try it. It's not easy. It's hard. Learning to trust whether it's this way or another way, is always hard. But try it. Begin to rearrange your life in such a way that you can actually take a day and rest. If you want to learn how to trust anyway, that's a good way to do it. Rest also, rest also gives thanks. Because after, after the, the three times in 15, 16, and 17, God comes through, even in the midst of their grumbling, none of those times are the people, are they even slightly grateful, right? They're not very good at learning these lessons. But rest, rest clears up space in our fragmented and overbooked world in our lives to remember all that God has done. I mean, it's hard to be thankful when you're always moving, when we're always gathering and, and constantly striving. But when we rest, we can actually remember and when we remember all that we have to be thankful for, it's a lot harder to grumble, isn't it? I mean, yeah, maybe things didn't go exactly as I'd planned. Or maybe, maybe there's something really legitimate that I have to be frustrated about. But, I mean, really, if I think about it, if I stop actually for a minute and rest and think about it, boy, God has been so good, hasn't he? I mean, look, look at all that he has given me, all that I need, and so much more. I mean, how could I accuse him in this area of my life? Rest makes room for gratitude, making it God's antidote for grumbling. When, when do you give thanks? And finally, rest worships. Rest, uh, biblical rest, isn't, isn't just leisure. 
Uh, it's not just watching TV all day or playing video games until your eyes bleed. True rest is worship. True rest is worship. I mean, that's why most Christians have chosen Sunday as their day of rest, right? Because it begins in such a way that, that can carry on for the rest of the day. Because rest says to God, by saying it's, it's worship, it doesn't mean that the whole day is a worship service, right? You know, you're singing and clapping or what, or what you know, what, I guess we don't really clap much here, do we? Uh, maybe we should, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the problem. Um, that's not the idea, but, but rest says to God, even just with our actions, even if we don't even realize it, it says, God, you're God, and I'm not. Uh, the rest of the week, I try to be God, if I'm honest. I try to have everything under control. I try to be that person, but I know it doesn't work. And so rest says with our actions, God, I, you're the one. You're, you're, you're in charge. You call the shots, and it helps us begin to stop grumbling. In our rest, we worship. Do you rest? I mean, really rest. Because if you don't, you will not trust you won't give thanks. You won't worship. I mean, not, not really, not like we were created for. If we don't rest, we will be enslaved to our grumbling hearts. Bitter and sad. Crumbling equals death. But rest in Christ equals life. I love what Mark Buchanan says in his book, The Rest of God. He says, the rest of God, the rest God gladly gives, is not a reward for finishing, It's not a bonus for work well done. It is a sheer gift. It is a stop work order in the midst of work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break we're allotted at the tail end of completing all our tasks and chores, the fulfillment of all our obligations. I love this. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them, without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we could. No more grumbling. We were slaves, but now we can rest. We were hungry, but now we've been filled. And Jesus, he even refers to himself as the bread of life, that he is this new and better manna, the one who satisfies our desires even better. I mean, if if all the Israelites needed was food, if that was really the problem, God would have left them back in Egypt where they had meat pots and bread to the full. But they needed so much more, and so do we. For Jesus is our true rest. He's the one who allows our souls to be at rest, even when our world and our lives are as chaotic as they often are, all through his death and resurrection. He is the one who promises rest in his yoke. And I, I love that metaphor, especially in this context. Because you think about the, the slavery, they, the Israelites were under the yoke of oppression with the Egyptians. It's terrible and brutal. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Not the yoke of the Egyptians, not the yoke of the Romans. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, in him, the one who never grumbled, even as he experienced the worst this world could offer in Jesus, only in him, we find rest.